you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We'll be reading the entire chapter this morning. If you're new here, or if you haven't been in a while, um, we're in the study of the Gospel of Mark, and uh, you've picked a great day to be here. Um, it's an interesting and a fun chapter. Um, We've been walking with Jesus now through the Gospel of Mark, and he has reached Jerusalem where he'll ultimately die, give his life on the cross for his people. In our text this morning, Jesus is calling us to understand something about what we can expect in the future and where his kingdom is headed. And here's why this is important. I think a lot of people in our day and age, a lot of people in our culture, would turn on the TV in the evening, see the evening news, and conclude, man, I'm just not sure where this world is headed. I mean, it's just terrible. Everything we're hearing and seeing in news and in culture is just awful. I'm not sure where this world is headed. But here's the deal, church. We don't have to be those people. We don't have to have that kind of an understanding of where the world's headed and how things are going to play out. Jesus tells us what to expect. He tells us, that his kingdom will advance. We can bank on it. You can take that to the bank. His kingdom will go forward. He tells us that there will be tribulation, persecution, suffering coming. You can bank on it. You can take that to the bank. It's going to happen. He tells us that he's going to return for the church, for the bride of Christ. You can bank on that. It is going to happen. And that in that day, every enemy will be defeated. Every enemy you and I have in this world, wrapped in this flesh, will be defeated. He will conquer all. You can bank on it. It's going to happen. In our text today, we see just that. What do we expect and how do we live in light of what we know we can expect to come? What do we expect and how do we live in light of that? So a few notes about Mark 13 as you're turning there. Uh, If you read ahead this week or did the the worship prep on the website, uh, you you probably read the text and thought, man, this is going to be something. And uh, the fact that we're covering a whole chapter in one Sunday, I mean, we just took five Sundays to go through a handful of verses, and now we're going to cover a whole chapter in one Sunday. We're going to be here for like two hours. This guy's never going to hush. Well, this is the longest uninterrupted section of teaching from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Um, It's often called the Olivet Discourse. That's because he's on the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and it's one teaching from Jesus. It's one discourse from Jesus. And so that's why we're taking it as one chapter this morning. Uh, as, as a church, we're going to study through it as he taught it. It's one, one sitting, one discourse. And so this is also the last time that Jesus is going to spend a significant amount of time with the disciples in a setting like this, teaching to them, teaching them before he moves into uh, the Last Supper and his death and resurrection. Um, Also, another thing to note about Mark 13, this is an incredibly hard chapter to interpret and to teach. Uh, I don't know if you picked up on that when you read it. A lot of commentators will say this is the most confusing teaching that Jesus gives in any of the Gospels. This and the parallel accounts in Matthew. and uh, That this, this segment of teaching is really difficult to understand. Jesus makes a statement about the destruction of the temple, right? That's how this whole thing starts. We're going to read the text in a moment. But Jesus makes this statement about the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem as a response to two questions from the disciples. He begins talking about that, but he uses language that's specifically Old Testament language that sounds real apocalyptic. It sounds real end-of-the-world type language, which makes it really difficult to, to, to interpret and to teach. 
But, you know, it makes sense, right? If you're, if you're a Jew speaking to a Jewish audience, right? The disciples were Jews. He's speaking to a, a primarily Jewish audience here. These disciples saw the temple. And this magnificent structure it was one of the modern marvels of the world at this time. And they, in their Jewish thinking, thought, well, surely if that's about to be destroyed, if what Jesus is saying is true and that's going to be destroyed, then it's got to be the end of the world. I mean, God wouldn't allow his temple to come down unless it truly is the end. Everything's about to burn. And so when they begin to ask these questions about the destruction of the temple, they're thinking, end of the world. Well, to quote my not-so-wise friend Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend, um, the temple did come down in 70 AD, and the world did not end. And so here's the hard part in interpreting Matthew or Mark chapter 13. What parts of Mark chapter 13 does Jesus specifically talk about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and the, the, the conquering of Jerusalem? And then what parts of it uh, would Jesus be talking about the end times, the end of the world, his second coming? Um, Jesus is teaching here, and everything Jesus is saying to the disciples on this day at the Olivet Discourse is prophecy, regardless of which one he's talking about, whether it's destruction of the temple or his second coming, it's all prophecy for them. None of that's happened for them. But for us, we're looking back on the destruction of the temple, and Jesus still hasn't come back yet, so there's still some of that that's future. And so the difficult part for us this morning is which part's future for us, second coming, and which parts are the destruction of the temple, past tense. This has been my prayer for us as we gather this morning. I shared this with our growth group and our elders and Wednesday night prayer meeting last week. My humble prayer has been this, Lord, don't let us leave more confused than we came in, right? It's a confusing text. It's a difficult text, and I'm just admitting that to you from the beginning. And so it's with humility that I'm standing before you this morning, opening God's word, and just asking God, God, help us to not be more confused than when we came in. Help us to see from your word what you would have for us this morning. And even in hard text, would you, would you convict us and challenge us and make us look more like Jesus and help us to live for King Jesus every day. And so here are some things that I know for sure about the text. Here's some things I know for sure about the text. This text, Mark chapter 13, is not meant to push us to go get out some graph paper and sketch a timeline of when Jesus is coming back. That's not the purpose of this text. The purpose of this text is not meant to give us hidden riddles so that we can search out the clues and figure out who the Antichrist is going to be and so that we can have all this secret hidden knowledge of the apocalypse and the end times. That's not the purpose of this text. This is not a national treasure movie. Nicolas Cage is not the main character. That's not the purpose of Mark 13. Though some of you are thinking that would be a whole lot of fun. It's not the case. But this text should drive us to our Savior, who not only holds our future in his hands, but he He holds our eternity in his sovereign hands. It should drive us to him. This text should drive us to our knees as we beg God for spirit-empowered obedience that we could live for him regardless of whatever circumstances may come our way. This text should cause us to worship King Jesus whose death made our life possible. All of these things should come from this text. And so here's a roadmap. Here's where we're headed. Uh, Because this text is difficult, it's been interpreted differently by a bunch of different people over the course of Christian history. I'm going to start by giving us a couple ways this text has been understood. A couple ways people have tried to explain this text. And to be clear from the beginning, Bible-believing, God-loving Christians have held different interpretations here. And so you may hold some different interpretations here. You may, in your growth groups this week, decide, hey, I don't really agree with what you're thinking about this text. And that's okay. Here's the point. 
We can disagree on the finer points of how to interpret this text and how to understand this text and still be unified in the gospel and still be unified on how this text is meant to be applied for the church today. And so even if we disagree, um, let's stand together on the gospel and stand together on how we would apply this text. So I'm going to give you quickly two ways this text has been understood, and then I'm going to show you my cards, all right? I'm going to show you my cards and tell you where I believe Jesus is teaching us here in the text. And I think the number one rule at poker is you don't show your cards, right? You lose all opportunity to bluff, right? Or if you're playing cards with Jess, you've got to protect your cards. She's going to try to peek, and she's going to try to cheat. So if you're playing cards with Jess, you better do this. Uh, I'm going to show you my cards. I'm going to tell you where I'm coming at with this text. Um, even if you don't agree, that's okay. We can still be friends, and we can still stand on the gospel together. And then finally, uh, in the majority of our time that's left, we're going to walk back through this text, look at the commands that Jesus gives us, and focus on those because that's the most important part, right? Regardless of how we interpret this text, regardless of whether we say this is the destruction of the temple or if this is Jesus' second coming, the application's the same. Live for Jesus, be obedient to the commands of Mark 13, regardless of whatever circumstance you're in. So that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. So a couple ways to understand the text. What Matt thinks this text is saying, and then five observations, commands from Jesus, and how we should live in light of having read and studied Mark 13. So let's read the text together, all of Mark 13. Let me just say this. It's going to be a little bit of a longer reading than we're used to on Sunday mornings, but bear with me. Uh, Don't zone out. I know the temptation with a long reading is to zone out, but here's the deal. You need to hear God's word a whole lot more than you need to hear my explanation of God's word. And so don't zone out. Key in right here and hear God's word. And listen as we read for future language, language like these things or those days. Listen for that because that'll be helpful for us as we walk back through the text. Let's read together. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another That will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. 
And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power, with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of, the, of heaven. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that, that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I'll give you a bit of background here, what's going on in verse 1. The disciples are overwhelmed with these massive stones and the physical structure that was the temple. And rightly so, these foundation stones, according to scholars, would have been about the size of a boxcar for a railroad train. Huge foundation stones, golden gates that were plated in silver and gold. These stones were laced with silver and gold. And so from a distance, it would would shine on the horizon, uh, almost like something out of a Disney movie or a fairy tale. They're mesmerized by it. And in verse 2, Jesus tells them, he he replies to them and tells them that, that that this thing that they're all amazed by, this temple they're all blown away with, will very soon, and actually very soon, be a pile of rubble. It'll be nothing but a pile of rubble. And on this statement, the disciples, in verse 3 and 4, have two questions. They're blown away by the statement from Jesus that this, 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 uh, this, this building that they've seen, this mar- modern wonder that they've seen, will one day be a pile of rubble. And so they ask him two questions. When will this happen, Jesus? And what will be the sign that it's about to happen? When will it happen and how will we know it's coming, right? And so in that context, Jesus begins to teach. He goes on this, uh, takes this opportunity to go into in-depth teaching. And so this, this passage, Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse, has been understood in two different ways. So if you have your outline in your, in your uh, worship guide, uh, our first point, the two different ways this has been understood, um, number one, some will say this is all about the, uh, the, the end times. This is all future. This is all the, the apocalypse. This is all the end times. And so your Schofield reference Bibles, some of the fictional things that you read in bookstores and 
in movies that have been made would portray this type of understanding. This view would say that, that everything Jesus is saying here is talking about his second coming. And so because of that, very little attention is given to the immediate context for the disciples, that the temple is actually going to be destroyed, and that's what brought about their whole question in the first place, that in AD 70, the temple's coming down, Jerusalem's going to be sacked, and, uh, and so the, this view gives very little attention to that. The problem for this view is in verse 30. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Jesus is just slightly wrong here. He got his timeline mixed up. Um, is he a liar? Is he just trying to scare them a little bit? Because this generation, the one Jesus was talking to, the disciples and all of his hearers on uh, Mount Olive that day, they're not still alive. I mean, I don't think. I've not seen them walking around anywhere. And Jesus hasn't returned yet. And so that presents a problem. Yet, there are faithful Christians that would hold this view and they have answers for those questions. But that's one view in the history of Christianity that some have had for this text. Second view, that it's some sort of interwoven mixture between the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and Jesus' second coming. So I like this view a bit better. Some, some scholars will say, you know, there's immediate fulfillment in the destruction of the temple. Everything Jesus is saying from verse 1 to verse 37, all of it has uh, immediate implications for the disciples and the temple but it also has a shadow and a picture of things to come in the second coming. So you can see both in everything Jesus is saying. James Edwards, another scholar who you've heard me quote, uh, I've studied his commentary through our Mark series. He's a faithful brother. He's a great commentator. He actually says that Jesus does a little flip-flop action here. He says that verses 5 through 13, where you see these things, that's actually talking about the destruction of the temple. And then you get to verses 14 through 27, and you see those days. And Jesus is talking about the tribulation, the second coming, the end of time. And then you get back to 28 to 31, verses 28 to 31, and you see these things again. And so he's going back to talking about the destruction of the temple. And then you get to 32 through 37, and you see that day, and it's Jesus' second coming. And so he, he gives this kind of back and forth thing. And I admit there's, there's, this makes some sense, and, and I can follow uh, Edwards' breakdown there. But the problem with it, for me at least is it just feels a little bit too much like picking and choosing. It just feels a little bit like, uh, man, man, we're just playing duck, duck, goose with temple, temple, you know, second coming, second coming, temple, temple. Like, there's no rhyme or reason to why Jesus is going back and forth between temple destruction and second coming. There's a couple ways that this view's been understood in the history of the church. I want to give you a third way to understand it, and here's where I'm showing my cards. It's point number two in your outline. I want to give you three observations that I believe point to verse 32 as being a turning point in Jesus' teaching. I think verse 32 is pivotal for us in what Jesus is doing. And to be clear from the beginning, this is R.T. France's view. He wrote a commentary that made this view popular, so I can't take credit for it. I didn't come up with this on my own. This is his view. And I actually can't even take credit for getting to R.T. France's view. Um, it was through having uh, lunch conversations with Pastor Stephen and dinner conversations with Chuck Quarles and men a lot smarter than me, that I even was arrived at this view. And so if this resonates with you, if, if, there, if there seems to be some truth and you, you believe this to be the case, then there's a lot of people you should thank, but I'm not one of them. Um, and so uh, this is R.T. France's view. Here's his interpretation. Here's what he says this text is saying to us. Verses 5 through 31, the, the bigger chunk of this text, 5 through 31 has these, these things and those days. And all of that is about the destruction of the temple. Five, verse five to verse 31. All of that, Jesus is preparing his disciples, those that were following him, 
for the destruction of the the temple. Real persecution that was coming really soon. That's what verse 31, uh, verse 5 to 31 is. Literally, he was answering the disciples' questions. How will we know that the temple's about to fall? What will be the signs that that day is coming? 5 through 31 is the answer to those two questions. And then you get to verse 32, and there's a major shift, and Jesus says, but concerning that day, Jesus begins to talk about his return, his second coming. And that day, no one knows, he says. Everything before 32 is about the temple. Everything after is about his second coming. And I want to give you three reasons briefly that I think this makes some sense. Number one, the subject of what Jesus has been talking about changes. You see this. Watch with me. We're going to walk back through this. I'm going to point these out to you. Look for the theses and the thoses. All right? I don't think that's proper grammar, proper English, but we're going to go with it. Verse 2, these buildings. Verse 4, these things. Verse 4 again, these things. Verse 7, these things. Verse 8, these birth pains. Verse 18, those days. Verse 18 again, those days. And again, a third time, those days in verse 18. Verse 24, those days. Verse 29, these things. Verse 30, these things. All of these have been plural. Everything he's talking about here, the subject of every one of these verses, has been plural. And then you get to verse 32, and he says, now concerning that day. Do you see the shift? There's a shift in what Jesus has said. His subject now is singular. Jesus is talking about a specific day, that day. There's a major shift there with Jesus' subject. I think this, this interpretation gives some, uh, a nod to that. Second reason. This interpretation deals with this statement from Jesus concerning this generation, right? Not passing away. He says this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So bear with me. If everything before verse 32 is about the destruction of the temple, then Jesus is absolutely correct when he says this generation, the one I'm talking to, will not pass away until these things take place. Why? Because they were alive to see Jerusalem fall. They were there for Jerusalem to be sacked. They saw the temple come down. They would have been living during that time. Also, this is not uncommon with Jesus. Think back with me to the Mount of Transfiguration. Just before they go up the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus says to his disciples, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man in his glory. Now, some people will point to that and go, oh man, that's the rapture. Jesus is saying some of us are not going to taste death. We're just going to be immediately caught up into the heavens, be with Jesus. We're not going to taste, no. What happens immediately after Jesus says that? They go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Peter, James, and John see Jesus in his glory. Literally, it's fulfilled momentarily, three days later after Jesus makes that statement about some of you standing here. You get to Mark chapter 14, which we'll be at in a few weeks. Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Jesus is on trial before the high priest. Verse 61, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see. This generation, you will see it. You will see it. He's talking about his resurrection. You'll see the power. You'll see the glory. Now, seeing verse 32 as the shift where Jesus begins to talk about his second coming puts all of that before, making all of this fulfilled in their lifetime. Third reason I think this view makes a a lot of sense. Uh, This interpretation, seeing verse 32 as the shift, makes the resurrection of Jesus the hinge in all of human history. Now, I, um, I love to go to Colorado. My sister lives there. My brother-in-law lived there, lives there. And when we go, we go snowboarding uh, at Purgatory. 
And when you're on top of the ski lift at the top of purgatory, you can literally see for, for miles and miles and miles around. And my brother-in-law one day says to me, as we're about to get off the ski lift, he says, hey, you see that, see that peak over there? That's so-and-so, so-and-so peak. That's where I go elk hunting. It's about 50 miles away. It's like, hmm, that's cool. He goes, you see that peak over there? That's New Mexico. It's over 100 miles away. I'm like blown away by this because to me, sitting on that ski lift, it just looks like a single line of mountain peaks. I mean, they just look like they're side by side. Some are bigger than the others, but they look like they're all right there. But the reality is they were hundreds of miles from each other because along the horizon, they just look like they're on the same plane. Prophecy is kind of that way. There are places in Daniel, for instance, in the Old Testament, where Daniel will talk about things that will happen a few hundred years later in the birth of Christ. And then just momentarily, like just moments after that, he'll talk about things that have still not happened yet. 2,000 years after Christ's birth, death, and resurrection, those things still haven't happened. But he just mentions them as if they're all the same. They're all future for him. That's how prophecy works. And I think sometimes we get things wrong because we look at things from our perspective. We're sitting here, 2018, and we hear future language in the Bible, and we automatically think from our perspective, right? Things that haven't happened for us. Things that are future for me and you sitting here today. We automatically assume when we hear that future type of language, oh, well, the thing that hasn't happened yet is Jesus' second coming. So that's obviously what he's talking about here. I want to submit to you this morning that there's a bigger mountain peak. There's a bigger prophetic mountain peak that Jesus was talking about than his second coming. And that bigger prophetic mountain peak, the bigger moment in the history of the cosmos is the resurrection, which is in our rearview mirror. It's past tense for us, right? But it was still future for Jesus and for his hearers. This interpretation emphasizes that. Let me show you how. Verse 24 and 25. You see this language of tribulation, sun being darkened, the moon not shedding light, stars falling, powers being shaken. It sounds real apocalyptic. But then you get to verse 26 and you say, then it says, but then the Son of Man will be seen coming on the clouds with great power and glory. I remind you that the sun was darkened during the crucifixion. Can also remind you that in the Old Testament, you see language of stars falling, but it's not talking about literal stars falling. It's in references to nations being destroyed. You see this in Daniel chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 14, Joel chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 32, Revelation chapter 6. The difference is those were pagan nations. And prophets were warning that these, these stars, these pagan nations that you think are so strong are going to fall. And here, this time it's God's own nation. It's Jerusalem. It's the people he loves. Powers being shaken. Earthly kingdoms coming to a close. Heavenly kingdoms being birthed. And I believe that for Jesus, this is that greatest mountain peak. It's that greatest future mountain peak. The hinge in all of human history is not his second coming, but his resurrection. That's why when we see in verse 26, the Son of Man in power and glory, that's resurrection. In chapter 14, verse 62, when he's standing before the high priest, and he says, the Son of Man you'll see seated in power and glory, that's resurrection. Because here's the, here's the reality, and here's the, here's the truth I want us to, to wrestle with. You see it printed in your notes because I wanted you to have it. The resurrection is the pivotal moment in history because if the king has conquered death, our greatest enemy, then the king coming back for his bride is a given, right? If the king can overcome death, if he can raise from the dead, then it's nothing for him to come back and get the church. That's why when Jesus is talking to his disciples here on this occasion and he talks about the, the Son of Man coming in power and glory, he's looking forward to his resurrection, I think that's that moment that he's, that he's focused on, not his second coming. And so we've spent a lot of time here. I want to move on. Here's the deal. 
even if you disagree with me on this point, we can disagree and still be friends. Here's why. Because regardless of how you interpret this, regardless of which points you think are talking about the destruction of the temple and which points you think are talking about his second coming, here's the thing we can all agree on, what this means for the church. What we can agree on is the application for us as believers today. Verse 37 still applies. Look at verse 37 with me. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake, Jesus says. He's saying it to all, meaning us today. He's talking to the disciples on that day. He's applying it to future hearers, us today. And here's what he's saying. I'm going to give you what to expect. I'm saying it to everyone. Stay awake. Regardless of what circumstances you find yourself in, stay awake. And so our third point on your outline this morning, five truths Jesus shares, five truths Jesus shares, and five expectations Jesus has for us. We're going to walk through these pretty quickly. Number one, fakers will come and go, so watch out. Fakers will come and go, so watch out. Look at verses five and six. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Skip down to verse 21. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Jesus warns us right here clearly in the text that there will be many who will come and they'll claim to be Christ. They may even be able to demonstrate it in some kind of seemingly miraculous way. They'll claim to have some greater truth. They'll claim to have some uncorrupted version of the truth. And Jesus says, watch out. Don't listen to them. Be on guard. Watch out. Why? Because Jesus has already come. He's already proclaimed to be God. He's proved it with his death and with his resurrection that he truly is the Son of God. Further, he sent his Spirit, who is God, to inspire the words of the Bible, and it's all the truth we need. And so here's the reality. If someone comes to you and claims that they have something outside the Bible, some greater truth, some greater authority, man, don't listen to them. They're a faker. Don't be fooled by it. You want to know Jesus, pick up his book. That's what he's saying to us. Many will come and they'll try to lead you astray, but don't listen to them. I think Jesus is looking down the timeline of history and he knows of the cults and of the different religions that are going to raise their head and try to lead people astray. And he says, don't listen. Second thing, Jesus warns us. And second command he gives us, number two, nations and catastrophes will come and go. Don't be alarmed. Nations and catastrophes will come and go. Don't be alarmed. Look at verse seven. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Friends, we live in a fallen world and there will be turmoil in our world. There will be wars, kingdoms will be conquered. Jerusalem was not the first and they certainly were not the last. So as they're having this conversation about the temple being destroyed, Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to see this. You're going to see this happening. Just look at all of history. I mean, great empires eventually fall. The Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Babylonians, they all fell. And so what's Jesus' command? Don't be alarmed. Even if the one you're a part of, even if your empire falls, it doesn't mean it's the end. Don't be alarmed. Even if our great nation, church, even if America were to fall, our hope is not in America succeeding or enduring or 
thriving. That's not our hope. Our hope is in King Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven, an eternal kingdom. He says, so if, if kingdoms fall, it's going to happen. It's a given. Don't be alarmed by this. Our hope is not in this world or nation or even in our comfort in this nation. Our true hope is in Christ. Number three. Number three. Tribulation will come and go, so be on guard. Tribulation will come and go, so be on guard. This is the longest section of the teaching that Jesus gives, verses 9 through 20. This is the point he's making. Verse 9 starts this section. It says, you be on guard or be on your guard. He's emphasizing the you there. Why? Because tribulation is coming. It's coming for you. So look at it. Look what he tells them. He gives them some specific details. You're going to be handed over to local courts. You're going to be flogged in synagogues. You're going to stand before governors and kings because of me. You're going to be arrested. Brothers are going to betray brothers. Fathers are going to betray their kids. Children are going to rise up and kill their parents. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. Regardless of how you interpret this text, this is reality. Regardless of whether you think this is about the temple destruction or whether you think this is about Jesus' second coming, here's the reality. Here's the truth in the text. Tribulation, suffering is coming for his disciples in that day, and it's coming for us today. Tribulation has always been going on. It has ebbed and flowed over the course of Christian history. At some times and in some places, stronger than others, we are going to suffer in this world for the name of Christ if we're living for him. I mean, even currently, while we sit here and in a comfortable room with comfortable chairs in a beautiful sanctuary and sing songs to Jesus and preach the word, there are brothers and sisters in Christ doing the very same thing around this planet that are risking their lives to be a part of what we're doing this morning. At this point in human history, there is more persecution in the world than at any other time in history. Tribulation will come. And Jesus has already told them, right? Even remembering back to our, our study of Mark, you want to be my disciple Take up your cross and follow me. In other words, if you want to be my disciple, you must be willing to lay down your life. And now he's being explicit with them. He's being super clear with his disciples. Indeed, some of you will lose your life for my name's sake. So Christian, be on guard. Here's the thing, too. He doesn't just stop at telling us to be on guard. It's not just, hey, just be on guard. He actually goes further and gives us our purpose in suffering, our purpose in tribulation. He gives us four of them. We're going to hit them real quick. It says this, share the gospel. Your purpose in suffering, your purpose in tribulation, share the gospel. Look at verse 9. You will stand before kings and governors as a witness. Verse 10, the gospel will be preached in all nations. Verse 11, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit is going to give it to you. The point in all of this is you're going to be a mouthpiece to share the gospel in the midst of suffering and tribulation. Your purpose in suffering is to talk about me, Jesus says. Second thing, he says your purpose in suffering is going to mean that you're going to persevere. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So to be clear, church family, enduring doesn't earn you salvation. It proves that you already had it, right? Just enduring, going through suffering doesn't mean that you somehow win God's favor. It just meant that you already have it through the blood of his son. And so in tribulation, persevere. When, when, when family turns on you, persevere. When the courts, the media, and it seems like everyone hates you, persevere. That's what your purpose is in suffering. He gives us a third one. Your third purpose in suffering, flee if you can. Look at verse 14. When the abomination of desolation, and again, depending on how we interpret this passage, could mean a number of things that we're not going to dive into this morning. Either way, regardless of how you interpret this text, when this atrocious event, when this awful event occurs, it will be a sign for you. And what should you do? Flee. It's going to be terrible. And if you can get out of Dodge, do so. 
If you can head to the hills, you can get to the mountains, then do so. Flee persecution if possible. Fourth thing, fourth purpose in your suffering says this, pray for God's mercy. Look at verse 18. It says this, pray that it won't happen in the winter. Why? Because that's tougher. It's harder. Verse 20 mentions God's action of, of cutting the, the days short, making it a shorter time of persecution. Why? Because he's a merciful God. So we learn that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of persecution, we pray, God, would you be a God of mercy? Would you bring this to a swift end? So to summarize, tribulation will come. Suffering will come, so be on guard. And as you're on guard, don't think that your suffering is in vain. Don't think that your suffering is for naught. Share the gospel. Persevere. Flee if you can and pray for God's mercy. Fourth thing Jesus teaches us here. God's power and glory will be showcased, so don't miss it. God's power and glory will be showcased, so don't miss it. Look at verse, again, 24 through 31. You see this language of tribulation, of sun darkening, and the moon not shedding its light, stars falling, powers being shaken. Any way you interpret this, regardless of which way you go on this, the point is clear. Then, it says, the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds with great power and glory. His power and glory will be showcased. And whether your interpretation leads you to believe that's his death and resurrection, or his ascension, or the spread of the church in the book of Acts, or his glorious return, his second coming, here's the point, don't miss it. Don't miss it. You see this commanded from Jesus in verse 28 and 29. He uses this idea of a fig tree. He says, you know how to know when summer's coming. When you, when you see a fig tree and you see its branches get tender and you see these leaves starting to sprout, you know summer's coming. Warmer months are coming. You see it even in the changing of the trees. Here's how you see the stirring of God's power. When you see these things happening, when you see God's spirit begin to stir, you can be sure his power and glory are about to be displayed. Don't miss it, friends. Don't miss what God is doing. Be alert. Be attentive. Fifth thing, fifth thing Jesus teaches and fifth command he gives us. The king is coming. The king is coming, so be alert. Verse 32 through 37, is on, there's almost universal agreement that with all the views, so like the two that I gave you to begin with, the one that I presented to you in the morning, it doesn't matter. There's almost universal agreement, regardless of how much you say is about the temple destruction, there's almost universal agreement that, that this part, verse 32 through 37, is for sure about the second coming of Jesus, right? Remember the original question from the disciples. The disciples say, Jesus, how are we going to know that the temple's about to be destroyed? And what are the signs that, that it's coming, that it's about to happen? Jesus has been giving them explanations. And up to verse 32, he's been showing them. He's been answering that question. You'll know by these things. The evidence is just like in the fig tree. When you see the evidence, you'll know that it's coming. But then you get to verse 32, and he says, now concerning that day. What day? Well, the day that Jesus returns. The day that Jesus comes back for his bride, the Bible teaches clearly that there are two trips Jesus will make to this planet that we call Earth. The first was through the womb of a girl named Mary in the town of Bethlehem, and it's already happened. The Bible tells us that Jesus not only came, but that he lived a perfect life, that he grew up, and he was the only one who's ever completely fulfilled the requirements of God and never sinned. He never broke one single rule, yet he was tortured and he was killed by his creation, by sinful men, because in doing so, he was paying the penalty that every one of us deserved for breaking his law, for breaking God's law. 
He died the death we deserve to pay our sin debt. He gave his life upon the cross. He was buried and he rose again so that we could be made sons and daughters of the king so that our sins could be forgiven if we would but repent and trust in his finished work on the cross. The Bible tells us that he's also coming back again. It's clear, not just in Mark 13, but it's clear in the rest of Scripture that he's going to make another trip to this planet. And it's not happened yet. It's still future for us. But this time, when he comes back to this planet, when he comes back to earth, it will not be as a helpless baby in a manger, no friends. When he comes back to this planet, he's going to come as the king who will rule and reign forever. He's going to come back as the victor who has won the battle and defeated every enemy. And of that day, Jesus says, Jesus is teaching him there, teaching the disciples here that no one knows that day or hour. No one knows. So here's the reality. When you see some goofball on TV saying, I know it's going to be this and this date or this and this date, you can probably write down in your calendar, Jesus is not coming that day, right? Jesus said no one knows the day or hour. He explains this with a story. He says a man goes on a journey, and he leaves his house, and he leaves his servants in charge, and the very last thing he says, the very last command Jesus gives, or the very last man, uh, command this man in the text gives is to the doorkeeper. As he's leaving, he says to the doorkeeper, here's my final parting words, be alert. Be alert. You're the doorkeeper. Stand guard. Be alert. And so what's the very last thing that this doorkeeper should be doing when the owner returns? Sleeping. Don't be asleep, man. Don't be asleep. Don't be asleep. So Jesus says that his second coming is going to be like that. It's going to be just like that master that's left his house, and he says he's coming back, and you better not be asleep. You better be alert. He leaves one question, I think, for me and for you today. Are you ready? Right now, today, are you ready? And he's already walked us through this. He says you can bank on the fact that, that fakers are going to come. You can be assured that, that nations will rise and kingdoms will fall and, and catastrophes will come. Natural disasters are going to be a part of, of life, a reality for us. Tribulation and suffering are going to be a reality for us. You can bank on it. And here's something else Jesus says you can bank on. I'm coming back. <laughs> I'm coming back. I'm going to return. Are you ready? And there's coming a day, and a day that only the Father knows. A day that only the Father knows, Jesus says. And he's going to look at the Son, seated at his right hand in glory. He's going to say, Son, it's time. Go and receive your bride. That's me and that's you. And on that day, Jesus is going to come. And the Bible says he's going to split the eastern sky to come and receive all of those that have put their faith and trust in Christ and repented of sins. Will you be ready? As Michael comes, as our praise team comes to lead us in a time of response, here's how I want us to respond. As you sing, pray. And as you pray, ask the Lord to identify for you. If you're a believer in this room, you know you've placed your faith and trust in Christ. You've repented of your sins and you've followed after Christ. You may have been doing so for years and years and years, or you may be a new Christian. Ask yourself this, am I living like I'm ready for Jesus to come back? Does my life look like I'm expecting him to split the sky at any moment to come receive his church? Ask yourself that. What does it look like to live a life expecting the king to return? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, maybe church is new to you, you've never been a part of anything like this, you may be here this morning wondering what all this is about. So we start to sing, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to be sitting right there, right? Right on that front pew right there. Would you come? just tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, man, I'm not ready. I'm not ready, but I want to be. 
I know Jesus was dealing with my heart this morning because I've never placed my trust in him. I've never repented of sins, but I want to. I want to be ready for when he comes back. I'll be right there. I'd love to share with you how you can be ready, how you can know that you're going to be with him when he comes back. Let's stand. I'm going to pray for us, and then you respond to the text. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you've given us your word, that we can know what to expect, that we don't have to live this life hopeless, wondering what this world is coming to. You've already said what it's coming to. That though there'll be dark days and though there'll be hard times, that you're coming back for your bride, the church, and there will be a glorious day when we'll be with you in your presence for all of eternity, and we don't have to fear what the future looks like. God, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice that if there's men or women, boys or girls in this room that, that are not sure if they're ready, that right now you would, you would draw them to yourself, that even physically in their bodies right now, their hearts would be beating faster, they, their respiration would be up because they know that they've never done that, they've never placed their trust in you, that you would lead them to yourself this morning. Help each and every one of us as believers to be asking hard questions of ourselves. Are we living like every moment counts and like King Jesus could come back at any moment? Help us to respond today to the words you've given us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.